One of the great injustices in Formula One in the 21st century has to be the fact that Robert Kubica only won one Grand Prix in his career. But that one race, which also gave BMW its only F1 win as a team owner, was certainly memorable as Kubica combined his superb speed with a clumsy assist from Lewis Hamilton to lead home teammate Nick Heidfeld for a 1-2 that was supposed to be the launch pad for BMW becoming a major front-running force in Formula One. Those of you who know the timelines involved here will have noticed that for this episode of Bring Back V10s, we've drifted into the V8 era, as this race we're looking back on is the 2008 Canadian Grand Prix. And joining me, Glenn Freeman, for our latest venture into the years when F1's engines had lost a couple of cylinders are Mark Hughes and Ed Straw. Mark, you were in Canada for this race, so for you, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think back to that weekend in Montreal? The big incident in the um at the, the red lights, the the, the rear ending of Kimi Räikkönen by Lewis Hamilton, they dominated the whole weekend. You know those two were um looked to be set to be going to be fighting out the destiny of the race. Although um, when the safety car came in and the top six all pitted, they uh, Kimi was only third, but it looked like he was about to um, leapfrog Kubica, and it looked like it was going to be a straight Hamilton versus Räikkönen fight, and then it just all in a blink of an eye it completely changed the complexion of the race in a <laughs> very controversial way um not not a way that you would ever seen before so yeah that that dominates that you know Kubica's win and and that um that incident in the pit lane is a, the, all I think of when I think of that race yeah we'll spend plenty of time on that incident and the fallout from it. Now, Ed, this was the last race before you deserted me on the Autosport News Desk to become a full-time F1 journalist. So what's your standout memory all these years later? And, and what was it about this weekend that convinced you to become an F1 journalist for the rest of your life? <laughs> <laughs> well, that latter part of the question, I, don't, I still don't really understand uh, <laughs> how and why it happened. But uh, yeah, I guess it was just a logical progression. But I've got a slightly strange, slightly esoteric memory of, of this weekend, because that weekend I wasn't watching the race live, because I was racing in Janetta's at Snetterton. And I remember catching a brief glimpse of the race, kind of relatively late in the day on, on the Sunday at Snetterton. Obviously, we packed up probably shortly before leaving. And that showed the moment when Toyota were actually running 1-2 with uh, with Trulli and Glock. And I remember just sort of looking in and you could tell that the usual suspects weren't up the front. So he didn't really know what was going on, but it was clear something odd was happening. But yeah, for that brief moment, there would have been a part of me that thought, oh, maybe this is going to be the uh, the Toyota breakthrough win. But Kubica was third at that moment. So that was actually what happened. I think I listened to the very end of the race on, on Five Live and then I'd have watched the, probably the highlights later. Actually, when preparing for this very podcast, this might be the first time I've watched that entire race in full, in real time, uh, since it happened, funnily enough, because I'm pretty sure it would just been the highlights I, I saw on the, uh, on the Sunday evening. Oh, well, I'm glad that this podcast has made you uh, complete the set of 2008 races then, if you didn't see it. At the time, before we crack on with Canada 2008, let's do a few more thank yous to those of you leaving us five star reviews on Apple Podcasts. There's plenty of them coming in at the moment. Now you're all diving into our latest series. And I always just want to say thank you. And we really appreciate it. So thanks to Jay Swain 2443 4 underscore MP44 
and Bradders28 for some of our most recent reviews. And Bradders would love to see more stories from the V8 era, so you're in luck today. And if you agree with Bradders and would like to see us add more episodes from 2006 to 2013 to future series, get in touch as we'd be more than happy to spend more time delving into everything that went on during those years as well. As for the V10 era, make sure you get your questions in about anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005 for our series finale episodes. You can submit them, as always, using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, or you can email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. And if you want to get early access to ad-free versions of the show, plus bonus content between series, check out the Race Members Club. To find out more about all the other benefits you can get and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. But let's get going. F1 had a fascinating championship battle shaping up after six rounds of 2008. Lewis Hamilton led the way with 38 points, with reigning champion Kimi Raikkonen second on 35 Felipe Massa another point back on 34 and the consistent Robert Kubica only six points off Hamilton in fourth. Hamilton started the year with a win in Australia but then had a scrappy couple of weekends in Malaysia and Bahrain but by the time he arrived in Canada off the back of claiming his second win of the season in Monaco Lewis said he'd relaxed after being too tense early in the year. Hamilton said I think I put too much pressure on myself and that led to mistakes being too on the limit. I wasn't really enjoying it. I wasn't in the right frame of mind, but I fixed that. Now I am enjoying it. I'm happier than ever and I'm loving the life that I am living. All these things do add up and I'm comfortable where I am. So Mark, after Lewis's incredible rookie season in 2007, do you think he came back a different person in 2008? Not so much a different person, but um, the, the circumstances had changed in that he was no longer fighting for in-team supremacy with Fernando. Fernando had gone. Um, heck, Kovalainen was there, but he was doing a, a job as a, a number two, really. So he, he wasn't he wasn't the same threat to Lewis that Fernando had been. So I think Lewis initially felt that focus upon him early in the season as, right, OK, the whole team's looking to me now. And he probably responded a little bit, maybe a bit too aggressively with with that. And then he he had that brilliant but fortunate win in Monaco, and I think that seemed to just steady him. And he realised actually this is you know this is well within me. I can I can comfortably lead this challenge, and, and I'm I'm more comfortable there um, doing it. And it, yeah, he came into Montreal, which is oh which. You know, he'd always been very good there, Any, anywhere between the walls where you, you've got to skim the walls close to, to, to be quick. Um, he, he was, he'd be confident. And so, yeah, I think um, it was, he wasn't a different person, but he was in a, a subtly different situation and he was no longer, um, I guess, trying to lay a marker down. He was already getting used to um, being of the stature that he was and relaxing into it a little bit more. Away from the championship picture, Honda was having a miserable 2008, sitting ninth in the constructors' standings with just six points, only ahead of the newly rebranded Force India and Honda's junior team Super Aguri, which had already fallen off the grid by this point. 
Honda's new team boss, Ross Braun, confirmed in Canada that the team only had two or three things still to be added to its 2008 car, while team CEO Nick Fry accepted, we need to be able to beat Ferrari and McLaren on a good day, and it's clear we're not going to do that this year. So Honda was the first team to publicly confirm it was switching full focus to the new rules for 2009. Braun had mapped out this plan on his arrival at Honda, and Fry said in his book called Survive, Drive, Win about the Braun GP story that Ross's plans were supported unanimously by the race team in Brackley because the 2008 car wasn't good enough. Braun made a habit of taking these decisions in his career, including in 1993 when he switched Benetton's design efforts to the new rules for 94, and of course in 2013 when Mercedes effectively threw in the towel against Red Bull that year to get ahead for the massive rule changes for 2014. Ross explained his logic in his book with Adam Parr called Total Competition. He said, if you keep piling in the resource on the problem you have today and never allowing some resource to go into the future, then you will never have that future. So Ed, history would tell us that Braun got this call absolutely right. But in the case of Honda in 2008, was his decision made easier by how badly their season was going? Yeah, without question. And I think how badly the season was going was effectively preordained by the fact this was always the strategy. Uh, when it comes to trading off one season against the next and potential progress, there's always two sides to the equation, aren't there? One is what you can achieve now that you're effectively giving up, and the other is what you can potentially achieve next year. Those 2009 aero rule changes were pretty significant. So the potential upside was huge, and Honda did have the budget and the facilities to make the most of them, given Honda was disastrous in 2007. It's clear even with maximum effort on 2008, probably with fair wind and some luck, the best they could have done was, what, fifth in the championship maybe, which isn't worth a great deal fifth ninth okay <laughs> makes a financial difference but you're not giving up a huge amount Ross Braun of course had come in quite late in 2007 so probably that helped him to take that strategic view of it and there will have been things he'll wanted to ch have changed off the track as well in terms of the working practices so it allowed the focus to be in, in the right place to sharpen that team up you would have to say though that the strategy did also make it easier for Honda to eventually <laughs> pull out funnily enough that was all about the global financial crisis, obviously, but the better you're doing, the harder it is to withdraw. I don't think, let's say they'd been fifth, I don't think that would have made any difference, and that's an optimistic position. So, yeah, completely the right strategy for that team, given where it was. Remember how bad the 2007 Honda was. The, the 08 car's a triumph compared to the 07 car, which, what was it, I think Jensen Button said of it, that it's just got a load of drag down the straights, so that as soon as you get into a corner, all downforce vanishes. So, yeah, it was just a car of just... All negatives. It's whatever. James Allison always refers to goodness in a car. It's whatever the opposite of, of goodness is uh, in a car. But we don't know what James Allison would call that because uh, he never has to say that about Mercedes these days. So, uh, yeah, just everything was wrong with that team. And Braun was able to make a lot of it right. Surely the opposite of goodness is badness, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But we're yeah, talking James. Loads of badness. We're talking James Allison language here, and it's very unpredictable and uh, and and eloquent. So I'm sure he'd have an even better word for it. Almost certainly, yeah. This, of course, is remembered as the stroke of genius that allowed Honda or slash Braun GP to go from also-rans to world champions in the space of one winter. But let's try to recall what the perspective was on this at the time. 
Braun said in his book that his ideal time frame to make the team competitive was three years, but that had to be accelerated because of the new rules coming in for 2009. Fry said that the aim for 2009 was to break into the top three for the first time in Honda's history as a team owner. When explaining the plan he and Braun mapped out to Honda, Fry wrote, 2008 would be what we described as an organising season. We aimed to build on that and improve during 2009, and then from 2010 onwards, we hoped to be competitive. But even after three years, we never talked about winning a world championship. We just wanted to be there or thereabouts with the top teams. When we went through the design and manufacturing process for the new car, we were certainly not trying to win the world championship. We were just taking our first steps under Ross, and the guiding principle was keep it simple. Fry added that it wasn't the easiest thing to sell to the Honda board, as it was still costing hundreds of millions of dollars to run around at the back in 2008. So he said it was presented as a shift of emphasis to 2009, not a case of writing off 2008. But Mark, it's easy for us to be skewed by hindsight, given what did happen with this car in 2009. So given how bad Honda were in 2007 and 2008, when you heard they were switching full focus to the new rules, what did you realistically think they were, might be capable of? There was no reason to believe it, would, it wouldn't get a lot better because, as Ed said, Ross had only just arrived. And so he was just in the middle of putting better foundations down, restructuring everything, upgrading the facilities, getting a new culture there, and, and recruiting heavily as well. Um, this was in the period of, of massive expansion of, of F1. The, the teams were getting bigger and bigger very, very quickly. And they'd fallen behind a bit, the, the, the Brackley team. Uh, as recently as 2004, they'd done a very good car. And they were, you know, they, they were um, second in the Constructors' Championship that year. But they'd sort of been left behind and had lost away and there'd been some internal disruptions as well since that time. So it was a little bit of a mess by the time Ross arrived there, but there was no reason to s suspect that it was that that was a, a permanent state. There was um it was a, a you know a well funded team um and it now had Ross in charge of it. So there's no reason to think it couldn't be a contender, but you wouldn't have assumed that in two thousand and nine it was gonna be um able to take on McLaren and Ferrari, let alone um, leave them in the dust. Another team that benefited hugely from these rule changes in 2009 was, of course, Red Bull, which, as we know, would dominate that next rules era from 2010 to 2013. But they also had more modest targets originally. In Canada, Mark Webber said Red Bull were hoping to push into BMW terrain, effectively as the best of the rest behind McLaren and Ferrari. However, Webber also said that he felt Red Bull was making nice progress under the current rules and he would have preferred the regulations to stay as they were. That was a view not shared within Red Bull, it must be said. And while the team kept working on its 2008 car more than Honda did, star designer Adrian Newey switched his focus to the new rules after the second race of the year in Malaysia. Newey said in his book, Bravely or stupidly, I decided we're not going to be challenging for the championship. We're unlikely to win a race this year. Our big opportunity is these new regulations. So once we got back from the second race, I stood back from the development of the 2008 car and got stuck into research and design of the RB5 for 2009. Ed, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that two minds like Braun and Newey, with all the success and dominance that they've enjoyed in F1, 
both had the same thoughts over the opportunity presented by these new rules. Yeah, it's two different teams in different situations, but both recognising the opportunity and with the qualities needed to make the most of it. Perhaps it was even easier, actually, for Red Bull to do it because 2008 was only its fourth season. It expanded, recruited rapidly, so 2009 was actually really well timed for it. And in fact, they'd lobbied for those rules changes to be put back to 2009 because they originally scheduled for 2008. So that was very good in terms of timing. So yeah, Newey and Braun both saw the same opportunity. And it's one of the great underrated abilities of the great technical leaders. Newey and Braun are hugely different in what they do and the way they they operate. Newey, hands-on design. Braun, the ultimate technical manager, you could maybe say. So very different perspectives and approaches. But the great skill they have is identifying opportunities. And that applies not just to the big picture stuff of there's a new rule set, let's go for it. But also the really important question of where do you look for those performance gains, Newey in particular is brilliant at looking at a set of rules and understanding how the the sort of different performance areas have shifted. It might be you gain from this area much more under these rules than another area and things get closed off, new opportunities are created. So, yeah, and the 2009 Red Bull was actually the best car of 2009. They just didn't hit upon the double diffuser, which required a very esoteric interpretation of the regulations. So, yeah both absolutely right but you have to be able to deliver on it you have to have the wherewithal the right facilities the right approaches the right management the right ideas to actually pull it off because that opportunity was in plain sight you know there were teams that we don't talk about Toyota was probably sitting there thinking well we've got the resources we're going to really focus on this opportunity they produced a good car didn't make the most of it and you can make a case for multiple teams having had the potential to take the leap forward. So the real genius, I'd argue, was actually in the execution, not just from the top with Braun and Newey, but the culture in the team and all the individuals working towards that collective effort. As Ed mentioned there, Newey says in his book that Red Bull were influential in these changes being pushed back to 2009. Newey explained, The aero rules had been fairly stable and the cars were now well evolved with nobody making big steps forward, which played into the hands of the top established teams with big budgets. We were playing catch up and it was likely that it would take us a while, but a big aero regulation change could offer a big opportunity for some fresh thinking. Originally, the change was to be introduced for 2008, but I felt that from a personnel, infrastructure and organisational point of view, we would not be ready to capitalise. So Newey's plan was to bring in Paul Monaghan from McLaren to be Red Bull's point of contact with the FIA and Adrian tasked him with getting the rules pushed back. He said Monaghan achieved this by arguing that the changes were being rushed and that more research was needed, so they were indeed delayed by a year. Mark, how big a difference could this have made to the competitive picture in F1 in the years that followed if these changes had come in for 2008 before the plans Honda and Red Bull had were being put in place? It's a very interesting question, and I think that um, my, my, my initial th- thoughts are that Red Bull would probably have ended up being okay and Braun w- wouldn't have had the, anything like the success that they had. Um, and, and I base that upon the, the reason that the 2009 Red Bull was so quick, even in single diffuser form, um, was Adrian had just in the way that Adrian is so brilliant at doing, it sort of conceptualized the 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 idea of what these new regulations meant in in terms of the impact upon where the air was flowing and what were going to be the problem areas. And he he did two key innovations 
on that 2009 car that I'm sure he would have done on a 2008 car, although the infrastructure wasn't there to turn manufacturing parts around quickly enough and do development quickly enough. In terms of the basic concept of car, I'm pretty sure Adrian would have come up with what he come up with, very very similar. And it was basically an H-section chassis rather than a, a square-section chassis so that the, that the chassis shape didn't... Um, dilute the effect of the the vortices that were being created by this new um, space on the 2009 spec front wings which is the became known as the y250 um so he did a much more sympathetic chassis shape to maximize the the y250 vort force and at the rear of the car he did a very the, the way that the pressures needed to be resolved between rear tire and diffuser the way that he did that was tapering the car in very, very heavily in, in plan view and then flaring it out over the top of the diffuser to give this sort of fishtail look. And the, those two features became just generic F1 um, subsequently, but only only after the Red Bull RB5 had appeared. And I'm sure had the regs come in a year early, Adrian would have done pretty much a variation of that and maybe the team wouldn't have been as well equipped to uh, to, to keep up and run with the, the development of it. But I still think they would probably have turned up with the, the fastest car. Braun, on the other hand, that double diffuser was a late addition to the car's concept. That it, it wouldn't have even been on the car had those regulations come in 2008. Now, it was a good car anyway, but it was, you know, it was almost sort of, you could say, ultimate iteration of the previous generation. It was very Ferrari-like in the way it was laid out as general concept, and that was generally probably the, the peak probably the fastest of the two, 2007 and eight cars. So the, the Braun was sort of taking that as the starting point and adapting the new regulations. And then late in the day, added the double diffuser. So I think actually um, Red Bull might have even been more competitive than, than they turned out to be had the regs come in early. But um, they may, as Ed's saying, it's about how you can convert that in that potential into into results and maybe they wouldn't have been as ready to um you know uh, fully exploit what they had um had the regs come in a year early but they would definitely have had a very fast car we can also broaden the question slightly and look at the knock-on effects in formula one because that affects the whole honda story the potential for the whole braun story the mercedes works team it could have fundamentally had a knock-on effect that completely changed the landscape of, of Formula One. We like a, a bit of a what-if in, in Formula One, so that's one for uh, for listeners to have a little bit of a think about. All this talk of switching focus to 2009 caught the attention of Fernando Alonso, who was back at Renault after his explosive year with McLaren. And while things were starting to improve there, Alonso believed the team should make a decision on what to do once its big updates for the following two races had come in. But Alonso was in the news this weekend for far more interesting reasons, as it emerged he was in talks with Honda about a possible drive for 2009. This story was broken by Autosport thanks to our former colleague Jonathan Noble ambushing Nick Fry by making out he knew more than he did and taking a punt by asking how talks were going with Alonso. So when a slightly caught out Fry confirmed the talks were ongoing, Autosport had its story. Fry expanded on the Alonso talks in his book, saying Honda revealed as much as it could about its plans in a bid to impress Alonso. He said, Ross and I had been wooing Fernando for months. We decided that if we were going to attract someone of his calibre, then we needed to give him a technical explanation that was honest. So although Fernando didn't know the finer details, he had a reasonable understanding of the work that had gone into the 2009 car. 
Alonso was coy about his future over the Canada weekend, although he did categorically deny being in talks with Ferrari about a drive for 2010, which is amusing given that's where he ended up. On 2009, he said, next year, everybody will start from zero. There are always surprises when these things happen. Any team can be strong next year. It's a difficult decision from a driver's point of view. Everybody is optimistic now about next year. You need the inside feeling that someone is cleverer than the others and at the end, trust one of them. To Ed, later in the year, Alonso had already recommitted to Renault for 2009 before Honda pulled out at the end of 2008. Was this just another example of Alonso being in the wrong place at the wrong time in the F1 driver market? Yeah, given there was a potential path into what became a title-winning brawn in 2009, you can argue that it was. There's another question of what if on, on this whole thing because then he could have maybe considered continue with the team when it became Mercedes and then maybe he's got six world championships or or however many uh, y- you want to say. The train of thought obviously creates a very different future for Alonso, but yeah, unfortunately, if they were a record book for hypothetical wins and titles, then Alonso would top every table comfortably. Had Alonso committed, though, who knows if he'd waited out the uncertainty over the winter after Honda withdrew, and they're already signs before the withdrawal of problems because they were chasing some new sponsorship deals they were looking at drivers they looked at Degrassi and Bruno Senna for example because they felt they could get some money from uh, from from Brazil for that because they were they were looking for ways to get more cash into the team even before the withdrawal at Honda so there were things going on there and also if you look at the the facts that Alonso was presented with at the time when he made the decision knowing that Ferrari was on the cards for 2010 I actually don't think you can say his decision was wrong because it was about the bigger picture. Renault in 2008 was a stopgap and then 2009 was kind of a second stopgap year that that suited him okay. So, yeah, you could argue that that Alonso maybe lost to championships of doing this and who knows what future, but I don't think in any way you can say that the decision was was incorrect because he'd have had countless teams telling him their exciting plans and how brilliant it was going to be I'm sure to mention Toyota again was another one they were always trying to sign big name drivers and and never succeeding so yeah I don't think we can blame Alonso for that certainly. As Ed mentioned there Alonso wasn't the only driver in serious talks with Honda and during 2008 BMW's Nick Heidfeld was one of those names as well. Heidfeld recently revealed he was close to signing for the team But when Honda pulled out at the end of the year, his reaction was, thank God I didn't go there. Nick told this story on the official F1 Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson, where he described it as his one unlucky moment. He said, we were close. BMW had the option on me, but they were playing a little bit. So I was looking around. We were talking with Honda and I think there was a very good chance. Heidfeld says he doesn't have any issues with missing out on the drive because it's something you could only know in hindsight. And he said even when the Braun turned up in pre-season testing in 2009, everyone assumed it was so quick because it was running under weight. But Mark, thinking back to 2008, how did you assess Heidfeld's stock in the driver market by this point? Was he a driver who should have been in high demand or... By this point, was he being put in the shade by Kubica? His stock had always been reasonably high. He, he wasn't regarded as a superstar, and Kubica very much was. Um, this was only Kubica's second full season and Heidfeld's ninth. And it was clear that Robert was going to be the one capable of fighting for a title. But Heidfeld was considered a, a sort of similar to a Coulthard Barrichello level of driver. Um, 2009 car, things went a bit awry for 
Kubica and that he was teamed with a very inexperienced race engineer at BMW and I'd felt it got things working for him a bit better internally so that in comparison to Kubica he, it looked over those two years that he performed you know um, quite respectably but I think you've got to look at the relative experience of both of them and I, the potential wasn't I don't think the, the, the potential of Heidfeld was that of a um, an obvious world champion it was of a guy that would definitely win Grand Prix if you put him in a, a good car but um uh, how would he have fared against Button in a in, in a brawn? Um, I think similarly to how Barrichello f- figured against Button in, in a brawn. Uh, I think in terms of outright potential, I think he was rated in the market at, a, at about the right about the right level. He was he was good and a potential Grand Prix winner, but um, not not a not regarded as a superstar. It's probably encapsulated in the fact that Heidfeld had talks and was linked to so many good seats, but he was always kind of Mister Number three or four on the list, shall we say, and that he was seen as that solid backup driver. Good driver, though. Certainly deserved to win a Grand Prix. Another man whose future was in the news over this weekend was the reigning world champion Kimi Raikkonen. He had a contract with Ferrari, taking him to the end of 2009, so there was no immediate immediate pressure here. But there were growing rumours that Raikkonen might not stick around beyond that deal. Kimi was asked about this and he gave an answer that could just have easily have been from the final year of his F1 career in 2021. He said, there have been rumours for many years. I wouldn't stop if I felt I would miss it afterwards. I would find something else to do and maybe I would enjoy that more. I like the racing in F1, but the other stuff is not always the best. Everyone is here because they love racing and driving. But when there are too many things that you don't enjoy or too many things you don't want, it is time to go away. Ed, we know Raikkonen would leave F1 for a couple of years after 2009, despite having a Ferrari contract that he had to be paid off from. But given the attitude he had to what he called the other stuff, even back then, how on earth did he end up racing in F1 until the age of 42? Yeah, the many contradictions of Kimi Raikkonen. I think (laughs) the fact that he had a couple of years out did help him. But also, that reference to the other stuff, the Formula 1 he returned to, was slightly different because the testing restrictions had come in. In 2008, there was already a little bit of a testing restriction, but it was a calendar year total and you could still do lots and lots and lots of mileage. But in 2009, the in-season testing ban kicked in. And really, since 2009, testing has been so limited, there hasn't been so much of that donkey work to be had to do. So I think that helped Raikkonen because the, the, the bias in terms of how much of the time you were spent racing and doing race weekends against testing etc was was shifted and in fact that was something Michael Schumacher cited when he came back as one of the reasons why he was happy to do it because he didn't feel he could do the old workload but he was he was still happy to do the sort of reduced F1 uh, F1 workload so yeah Raikkonen was interesting in this phase because bafflingly for a driver who's just just ret- just now retired really he was already sliding down from his peak because his absolute best years were Frankly, with with McLaren, even when he moved to Ferrari and won that world championship, things were moving away from him in the formula, the way the tyres worked, etc. The formula did move away from him as well. So it's better for him kind of work-life balance, shall we say, wise, but less good for him technically. So maybe had Formula One stayed a bit more as it was in the in the mid-2000s, he'd have burned brighter for longer, but in total been around for, for less long. So yeah, very, very strange situation for Raikkonen. And of course... The whole Ferrari future thing was tied to their desire for Alonso 
which is what ultimately led to Raikkonen being paid quite a lot of money not to drive for the team because he had some automatic renewals in his contract and that kind of thing that, that were triggered. So, yeah, Raikkonen's going into the the slightly well, he's into the slightly curious start of his career in two thousand eight was a was a strange season for him of endless fastest laps when the car balance with a tire degradation and wear got him into the right window in races. So he still had the pace, but he just wouldn't deliver it consistently. So yeah. An interesting driver, another one for endless what ifs. Away from the driver market, there was another story that, much like Kimi Raikkonen, shows some things never quite go away in F1. Because F1 had another flexi wings controversy brewing, and the FIA had stepped in to stamp it out. This time, the focus was on the bridge wings that ran as part of the front wing assembly and over the top of the nose, one of the many aero developments that was never seen again after the rule changes for 2009. Footage from the early races of the year had shown that these wings could flex at high speed, which, as always, was against the regulations. So the FIA ordered teams to fit a supporting stay between the bridge wing and the nose of the car to hold it in a fixed position. And all I can say is, if only all flexi-wing controversies were so easily solved. But Mark, I think this sums up the way F1 Aero was going at this point. By 2008, there wasn't really any part of the car the teams hadn't managed to attach some sort of device too. What did you make of how the cars had evolved by that point? Were you a fan of all the bits that had sprouted onto them? Not really. They were a bit too intricate, weren't they? They were too bits hanging off the cars, a little bit like the Batmobile with all those veins and things. And um, or if you're in the road cars, the current Honda Civic Type R with just little flaps and flick ups everywhere, just looks untidy. They weren't attractive, but neither were the 09 cars with that funny front wing and the high narrow rear wing. Um, but the reason they were brought in, as, as these ones are, was to improve the raceability of the cars, and it, it actually didn't make that much difference. The teams had found a way around the intent even before the season began. I'm sure that's not going to be the case this time because it's been much more uh, deeply researched. But no, I wasn't wasn't a fan of the look of those those cars. But um, every every new new little device, such as the bridge wing you mentioned there, the teams would cotton on to ways of um, how to you know, ex- exploit those. And that bridge wing was a, it was a great little thing to get flexing because it meant you could have it working as a really, you know, effective downforce boost in the slow corners. And then in the faster corners where you, you wanted a more rearward balance to get the car more stable, you could just you'd get the that bridge wing to just start flattening out so that you didn't have as much front end on the car. It's very elegant in, in terms of, the way it worked, but it was certainly wasn't elegant to look at. I remember being at McLaren for a launch, maybe in 2010, I'm going to say, and running into the 2008 car. They have a display of cars on the boulevard, the sort of the main walk through the, the main factory, and seeing the 2008 car in its, in its end of season form, and it had these sort of rails down the top of the side pod and all sorts. And it was so jarring and grating to see all that sort of fussiness on the car. Great engineering, fascinating from that perspective. But yeah, you sort of get used to them in period. But then when you're confronted with them a little bit later, having got used to something different and cleaner, despite the weirdness of those 2009-10 cars, yeah, it, I just remember how much it struck me how grating that car looked. When you said you ran into it, I thought you meant physically and you were going to tell me that some winglet or something had cut your leg open. Well, you never know. I'm always crashing into things and suffering leg injuries, so uh, it is possible. Yeah, believable story. As well as a tech controversy, F1 also had more Max Mosley drama on its hands in June 2008. 
In March that year, the News of the World newspaper had sent shockwaves through Formula One with its story exposing what Mosley liked to get up to in his spare time. And let's just leave the description at that. Three months later, Mosley was facing a vote of confidence over his position as FIA president, which he initiated and he won. 103 of the FIA's member clubs voted in favour of Mosley carrying on. 55 were against, seven abstained and four votes were invalid. Mosley wrote in his book that the news of the world controversy was seized on by some of those in motorsport who disliked me for whatever reason and he said his enemies were mortified when he won the vote. Explaining his reasoning for placing his fate in the hands of the FIA members, Mosley said what mattered was what the FIA member organisations thought. After all, it was they who had elected me. The Formula One teams have no votes in FIA elections and what they thought didn't really matter. This was always going to be crunch time, at least as far as international opinion was concerned. I never for one moment doubted that holding it was the right thing to do and it would have still been the right thing to do even if I had lost the vote. Ed, on the FIA motorsport side of things, did Mosley handle the fallout from this controversy the right way by putting it to a vote like this or would it have been better if he just stood down? Yeah, I think certainly from his own personal position, he executed that strategy very well, whether it was in terms of shoring up his position in the FIA, which of course is a political organisation, it still is. Uh, he played the politics brilliantly to make sure he could he could stay on. So yeah, you can't really complain about it. It's all about voting blocks and who you've got in your corner, etc. And he's quite right that it was seized on as an opportunity for his enemies to, to try and take him out. So he'd round up all his friends or people he could encourage and induce to be his friends by certain means. This sort of horse trading goes on all the time in FIA and all sorts of sporting and political organisations indeed. And if you look at the question of it would have been better if he just stood down I think ultimately it's it's problematic if you say people have to stand down for something that would loosely be under the the, the question of personal morality etc shall we say and uh, when it came to the the whole uh, the whole wider story which we won't get into the details of but when he later won his privacy case I think it was the following month there was a key element in the story that was the justification for it being in the public interest that was uh, that that he won that on which actually changes the significance of, of what of what was reported. So I don't think from a wider FIA perspective, you can say that he had to stand down But because of that. It would have been easier, probably, and some would have preferred it. But yeah, and I think you have to admire the, the way he took on that whole situation across the board. He didn't come up with the ridiculous denials that, that some people uh, would would tend to reach for in, in that situation so yeah he handled it quite well I think there were probably other arguments for why Max Mosey wasn't the best person to lead the FIA from a motorsport perspective at, at this time but uh, yeah I don't think that was one of them. After the vote several of the bigger member organisations of the FIA that had voted against Mosley spoke out including the German, Dutch, American and South African associations but Mosley was most taken aback by his ally for several decades Bernie Eccleston putting pressure on him to stand down. Mosley felt Eccleston was acting on behalf of F1 owner CVC, who Bernie effectively worked for in his role as F1's ringmaster. But after various attempts by Bernie and the teams to oust Mosley at the Spanish and Monaco Grand Prix earlier that year, they tried again in Canada after the vote of confidence. 
Publicly, Bernie told Reuters it would be difficult for Mosley to do his job if people didn't want to meet with him, and he hoped it wouldn't destabilise manufacturers and sponsors. He said more to The Independent, saying the teams and manufacturers were violently opposed to Mosley, and Eccleston didn't think it was good for Max or the FIA if he continued. Mosley said in his book, Bernie failed once again to get the vote he wanted. What was so strange about this Canadian campaign was that Bernie ought to have known that now the FIA General Assembly had voted in my favour, it was pointless trying yet again to get the teams to come out against me. The FIA would simply ignore them, as would I. Now, Mark, Max said Bernie later apologised for the way he treated him during all of this. Given their history together... Were you surprised to see Bernie so involved on the side of the teams who were trying to oust Max? I was, yes. It was the first time they'd been publicly um, at odds in you know decades of, of operating together, the Max and Bernie shows. But I, I could see why Bernie was taking that position. There really was the undercurrent threat of a, of a split with a manufacturer-led championship moving away. Um, and with Max around, he was so divisive among the teams that would have been, you know, a commercially disastrous development for Formula One's owners, CVC. And essentially, Bernie, although he was running the commercial side of the sport, he was a CVC employee, in effect. So his position in the Max and Bernie show was compromised by that being in that position regarding CVC. And, and Max's was compromised by how a big proportion of the teams wanted him gone. And yes, he's, he's right, there was no mechanism for the teams to vote them out um, but there was um, plenty of ways that the team could apply that pressure and they, they subsequently did in the, the, the following year and um, it looked for a time as though there was going to be a, a, a split championship so that was always the underlying threat and that was why Bernie would have been very uncomfortable with um, Max insisting that he stayed on. Getting to the on-track action, the first big talking point of the weekend was the state of the track surface, which by the time of qualifying on Saturday was badly breaking up, with marshals sweeping away debris from the surface between each qualifying segment. Among the drivers, Raikkonen called it a joke. Jano Trulli said it was a disaster that was getting worse every lap. Sebastian Bourdais said it was unreal. And Mark Webber, who crashed in qualifying, said the drivers would need to use motocross bikes in the race. And Felipe Massa said it was dangerous, but not dangerous to risk our life. The drivers were concerned about the race, believing it would be impossible to move offline to overtake anyone, and they would effectively be driving around on train tracks. Fernando Alonso feared the race might have to run behind the safety car if things got worse on the Sunday. But not everyone was complaining. Rubens Barrichello dragged his terrible Honda into Q3, which he put down to his experience. And the main driver not fussed about all this was Hamilton, who was on pole by six tenths of a second. Hamilton said, it's not going to cause me any problems as I know how to drive around it now. Everyone else was struggling with the poor track surface and I found a solution. It's one of my skills. I'm able to adjust to whatever conditions I have. I feel comfortable and it wasn't tough, to be honest. Ed, track surface problems were a recurring theme in Canada in this era. Would you have been on the side of the drivers who were complaining or was Hamilton in the right here? I think the complaints were, were justified. It was clear that the track surface wasn't up to the task. And the race didn't go too badly, actually, but that was only because of the job they did overnight to get the problem areas patched up, particularly the hairpin. There was a sort of polymer resin with fibreglass in it and a chemical sealant used that gave it a little bit of a 
glassy feel apparently if you look at the footage the hairpin is a bit of a mess um, and there are some other patches as well that were, were, were problematic so actually they got away with it in the race but only because of what what they'd done to to patch it up this circuit had also had problems in the past 2005 they had uh, they had difficulties with it so it wasn't a first offense the track surface doesn't have to be perfectly smooth but it's when it's breaking up that it's really problematic so good that they got away with it, but yeah, it's correct to say that, that the surface wasn't really up, up to the task, and had it not been treated uh, overnight, Saturday into Sunday, then the race could have descended more into the fast that, that some feared. But at the same time, the likes of Hamilton and Barrichello are correct to make the most of the opportunity it created, but yeah, not up to F1 standards. Hamilton certainly had things under control on race day to begin with, he controlled the first stint of the race, building up a nice little lead over fellow front row starter Kubica. Then the safety car was called out after Adrian Sutil's Force India stopped by the side of the track before turn three. And as this was close to Hamilton's refuelling window anyway, he led a train of leading cars in for their first stops. But this was where the race turned on its head. Hamilton was jumped in the pits by Kubica and Raikkonen as McLaren decided to take on a bit more fuel for the middle stint. However, as they all set off down the pit lane after their stops, they were met with a red light at the pit exit and as the field was uh, because the field was still trundling by on track behind the safety car. Kubica and Raikkonen stopped at the red light, but Hamilton saw it too late and in trying to swerve to avoid them, he clattered the back of Raikkonen's Ferrari. They were both out of the race immediately and Nico Rosberg had also run into the back of Hamilton in his Williams, damaging his front wing but able to continue. McLaren accepted that in the excitement of stopping two cars in quick succession under the safety car, the team had been a little late warning Hamilton of the red light. And Hamilton said his main focus was making sure he didn't get involved with Kubica and Raikkonen ahead, and then all of a sudden they just stopped. He added, it's not exactly a racing incident, but it's really unfortunate. It's a lot different to if you crash into the wall and you're angry with yourself. So, Mark, you mentioned this at the start. What did you make of all this as you're witnessing it? Was was it just unfortunate for Lewis or is it the sort of careless error you shouldn't be making? No, it's, a, it's an error. And I mean, no matter how much Lewis tried to dress it up, it was <laughs> it was his error. Uh, the lights were red, as, as Kimmy pointed out to him afterwards as they got out of the car, pointed at the traffic lights. Um, and yeah, he rear-ended. He was just, you know, it's like a, almost like a traffic accident, you know, somebody plowing into the back of the car's stopped at the red light and uh, interestingly is as he was um locked up because the Kubitzer and uh Reichen were were lined up alongside each other and as Lewis was first locked up it looked like he was going to plow into the back of Kubica but he tried to steer it into the gap there's a little gap but it wasn't quite McLaren width between the the, the wall and and Reichen and 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 he, he, he was in trying to get into that gap that he ended up hitting the Ferrari rather than the BMW, because again, you know, he could have hit the BMW and Raikkonen would have won the race, I guess. But uh, yeah, it, was, it all changed in that moment. But yeah, there's no way it was anything other than Lewis's fault. Yes, of course, the teams you should be straight onto it and, and telling him and warning him. But you know, that doesn't make it the team's fault. It's 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 the driver's fault clearly. McLaren had some recent history of this very pit exit red light, as in 2005, when Pablo Montoya had driven through a red light in similar circumstances and got himself excluded from the race. And believe it or not, Hamilton referenced this the night before the race, saying it was important not to get caught out by something like that in a race that was likely to have some safety car periods. Lewis said on the Saturday night, 
I know in the last few years, when Pablo Montoya came out of the pits with the red light and also Felipe last year, it's very tricky. We have to make sure we don't make any mistakes. So, Ed, given that Hamilton and McLaren had such an awareness of how this scenario could ruin a race, should they have perhaps been more alert than anyone to this possibility? Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? It's it's a, a strange situation across the board because they'd clearly spoken about it before the race, but evidently there was no kind of backup system to remind Hamilton as he left the box to watch out for, for the red light, which would probably have been a prudent thing to have for any team just to say to watch out for it. The reason for that is that A, Canada is quite a high probability safety car race, so greater chance of that happening, and B, the whole configuration of the start-finish straight, that first complex and the pit lane is a bit weird because the pet exit brings you out in turn two. So if you think of a normal circuit, I don't know, Barcelona, you just have a pit lane joining the main straight. So the train goes past, it's a little bit more simple, but the red light's likely to be on for a bit longer, I think, in, in Canada and a lot of other circuits, hence the greater chance uh, of doing it. So from a team perspective, there probably should have been a warning in place, but it was absolutely Hamilton's error because he knew about it. There was a red light for him to see there were cars slowing down for a reason. So the the, the buck still ultimately uh, stops with him, but McLaren should have should have reminded him as uh, as well. It's just a it's just a thing that got through the the cracks because it's easy on Sunday night or Saturday night or whatever to say yeah, I've got to watch out for that. But particularly when it's a moment of what you might say is low risk in the race that moment when you're trundling down the pit lane before the the speed control's gone it's probably a moment where you can just sort of not be worried about anything and then it'll be a threat it's a bit like you know if anyone's ever had a moment at a traffic light where they've just missed a red light and just nudged the back of someone it's it's like that it's a really stupid error but uh yeah the driver ultimately has to carry the can hamilton was given a 10 place grid penalty for the french grand prix for this Raikkonen wasn't impressed. Uh, as Mark hinted at, Kimi looked about as animated as you'll ever see him when they got out of the cars and he uh, drew Hamilton's attention to the red light by pointing at it. Afterwards, Raikkonen said, it's one thing to make a mistake at 200 per hour, but another to hit a car stopped at a red light. I can't imagine how Hamilton could not see the red lights and the two cars standing in front of him. I think he deserved the penalty. I'm not angry, just disappointed, surprised and frustrated at the same time. He knew that the lights were red. Accidents happened, but it's not difficult to see two cars stopped. Hamilton called the penalty a bit harsh as he felt he'd already paid a price by ruining his own race. And he called the red light rule silly because drivers shouldn't have to look for a red light in the middle of a race. Ferrari team boss Stefano Domenicali called it a black flag offence. And he said that seeing as Hamilton was taken out as well in the incident, a grid penalty for the next race was what he'd expected. McLaren management attempted to defend Hamilton, with Martin Whitmarsh saying the penalty was disappointing and quite severe, while Ron Dennis said Hamilton was watching the back of the cars in front and pointed out that F1 cars don't have brake lights. Uh, so let's, let's give our verdict on the penalty, and you can both answer this. Mark, you can go first. Was that penalty of a 10-place grid drop for the next race a fair outcome? Yes. It was a fundamental error and it, it ruined somebody else's race, so yes. Yeah, and we should note, Rosberg got the same penalty as well for his involvement in it. it it's it's such a bizarre thing to complain about the penalty of. Martin Whitmarsh defended it, but he said F1 cars don't have brake lights, but there was a red light on a traffic light. So there's a, there's your brake lights. And Whitmarsh also likened it to Raikkonen not getting a penalty for hitting Suttle at Monaco. And so, yeah, but he lost it. Yeah, that was in racing conditions, in wasn't it? In what? 
damp conditions coming under breaking for for the chicane. That was an honest mistake. Hamilton's error was an honest mistake, but it was a really stupid one. You've got to come down on that. Anybody who's raced, we'll all have had it in circuits in the real world. There's a traffic light at the end of the pit lane, and you don't go out if it's red. You have that. Normally, it's more of a thing in practice sessions, but we'll all have had to see a red light and stop at it. Yeah, none of us were leading a Grand Prix at the time, but even so, it's, it's a simple thing. But I I've never felt, I think of, of all the little things that have happened to Hamilton in his career, this is the one he struggled the most to get his head around because even when he's asked about it subsequently, I remember at the French Grand Prix in in 2008, he, he kept using this formulation of it wasn't a mistake, it was just something that happened. And I've heard him use that a few times because he's often asked about it in, in Canada in subsequent years, similar sort of thing. It's like it's like he's never really got his head around what a, a stupid error that that was and yeah if you're going to give penalties for things that probably is the sort of thing that that merits it but th- this was a season where Hamilton was starting to find uh was starting to get quite frustrated with the penalties going around this was kind of early and he got one at Manny Core as well for passing Vettel off track on uh, on the first lap as well so yeah but it's a stupid hour you've just got to take it on the chin sometimes haven't you back in the race Kubica rejoined 10th as nine cars stayed out when the leaders pitted BMW split its strategies by leaving Heidfeld out as the new race leader to attempt a one-stop, while Kubica and those who pitted under the safety car, including Alonso's Renault, would be two-stopping. One thing working in Heidfeld's favour was the fact that the car behind him in second was Barrichello's Honda, so when the race restarted, Heidfeld was clearing off at around two seconds per lap. When he finally pitted on lap 29, he was 26 seconds clear of Kubica, and that was enough for him to rejoin just in front of Kubica and Alonso, who seemed to be his main rivals for victory, and still had to stop again at this stage. However, Heidfeld was now full with fuel to get him to the end, and he was running the softer Bridgestone tyre that he didn't feel as comfortable with. So after a lap of running in front of Kubica, Heidfeld didn't fight his teammate when he attacked into Turn 1, although Heidfeld was quick to deny that there were any team orders here, as they were banned at the time. Heidfeld said, As I was on a one-stop and a lot heavier than Robert, it's clear within the team that I wouldn't make it too difficult for him. I'm happy to help Robert as long as it doesn't spoil my race. So Mark, at this point, Kubica still had to go and build up a big enough lead to make another pit stop. But what did you make of how BMW played this part of the race? With the split strategies and Heidfeld not fighting Kubica at this point, were they getting everything right? They were in hindsight, but I don't. I think they were a little bit lucky. It wasn't always fully in their control. There was a little bit of... Um, I mean, at first, Heidfeld um, didn't come in on the lap that he was asked to because he, he thought he might be um, being had over. Um, so, yeah, I think there was a little bit of, um, you know, tension and the pit wall wasn't always fully in control, but it actually worked out fine. And it, that was largely thanks to Heidfeld not fighting um, Kubica in the lighter car because if he'd managed to hold them back while he was um, light, then that would have destroyed Kubica's strategy and he wouldn't have even he wouldn't have even made the podium. Um, and so it was that which effectively lost Heidfeld the race. But it, you know we would also have lost BMW that one too. Um, Heidfeld could have uh, won it, but um, that that would have been it. So. Yeah, I, it worked out perfectly in hindsight. The the the, the calls were the, the right ones in hindsight, but I think it relied a lot upon <laughs> how Heidfeld handled it. Heidfeld, of course, still had Alonso cont- who t- to contend with, and Fernando was on the same strategy as Kubica. So when Heidfeld asked if he could also not fight Alonso, he was told to defend his position, which he said he found surprising. 
BMW later told him he could let Alonso go if the Renault started attacking, but by then Heidfeld felt he had Alonso under control. Alonso eventually launched a massive attack into the hairpin, but ran wide on that messy surface that Ed mentioned earlier, and not long after this, he crashed at turn seven. Alonso was fuming after the race, feeling Renault threw away victory by stopping him under the safety car. He felt he had enough fuel on board to convert to a one-stopper like Heidfeld did, and he'd been running three places ahead of Heidfeld when the safety car came out. Alonso kept his spiciest quotes on this for the Spanish media, as, as was so often the case in this era. He said, We made a terrible mistake with the strategy. We probably would have won if we had stayed on track instead of pitting when the safety car came out. We had six or seven laps, which is what Heidfeld ran to emerge ahead of us. Stopping on lap 25, we would have been ahead of Kubica and we could have won the race. I asked the team twice on the radio if they were sure that st this strategy was the best and they told me it was and I pitted. When I saw Heidfeld was in front of our car, I realised I was right that it would have been better not to pit. We had the chance and we didn't take it. So Ed, what do you reckon? Did Fernando have a point here? What were we saying earlier about Fernando Alonso and hypothetical wins? Um, I mean, with the way the race panned out, yeah, he is correct because let's just say for the sake of argument, he'd have gone as long as Heidfeld did. He could have pitted. If he pitted at the same time as Heidfeld, he comes out ahead of him and therefore ahead of Kibitza. So if he could have held off Kibitza later, then yeah, maybe he, he could have done. But it's it's not really that simple because it, it's hindsight based. As as Mark mentioned, there were un, sort of unpredictable elements in terms of the way you play the strategy. BMW needed a little bit of fortune and things could have gone against Renault. The first safety car wasn't massively far into the race. So given the track surface problems and the nature of, of that circuit, there was a high probability of subsequent safety cars. So banking a pit stop wasn't a terrible idea at, the, at this stage. Renault's position was that it wasn't worth taking the gamble. Perhaps given how competitive the car was, which wasn't too bad Canada weekend, maybe they should have taken the risk. But I don't think you can say it's absolutely wrong. And of course, Alonso's version of it is his strategy was, well, I'd have done this and I'd have definitely uh, won. So, yeah, it was possible, but it's it's very easy to say in hindsight. I think um, had they done the race the way Alonso said, they would definitely have got track position. Um, whether he could then have held on, I, I'm not so sure, because the Renault was not as fast a car as the BMW, and it was um, as competitive as it was at Montreal, mainly because they'd gone really, really risky on brake duct size, and the, the front brake ducts extract a lot of lap time because of the aerodynamic disruption they cause, but obviously you need them to cool the brakes. And they'd, they'd gone, Montreal is um, very, very hard on the brakes, and, and they'd gone really, really riskily small on brake duct size, and the sister car of Peak actually ran out of brakes in the race. He had to retire because he had no brakes left. So, uh, you know, whether he could have, with haven't taken track position, whether he could have withstood the attacks of a healthy BMW, um, whilst keeping his brakes in one piece, I'm not. I'm not so, so, so sure. So I don't think it's as simple as Alonso was making out. He did, he could definitely have taken track position, but whether he could have held on a, on a track where it's overtaken is perfectly feasible. I'm I'm not so sure. So we can let him definitely have a third place at worst. Uh, that that would have been possibility. He could have been DC to the yeah. To yeah, the podium. we can definitely give him that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he'll be delighted to know that. Some somebody tell him at pre-season testing. We've credited him with another third place if uh, if they'd done his strategy. 
Kubica still had another stop to make at this point of the race. And once all of the one stoppers had pitted and got out of his way, he set about building as much of a lead as he could over Heidfeld. When he finally came in on lap 49, he'd managed that comfortably. And from there, he just had to keep it on the road out front. Easier said than done with that surface, but that was to bring home his first win. After the race, Kubica said of this portion of the race before his final stop, I had eight laps to make 16 or 17 seconds to come back in front of Nick after my pit stop. Those were qualifying laps. I knew I needed around a 21 second gap and I managed to do 24. So Mark, was this, uh, was this an impressive piece of almost Michael Schumacher-esque brilliance in the run up to uh, Kubica's pit stop? It was, yes, in terms of the sequence of super fast laps. Yeah, he was, it was terrific. It's what won him the race. Um, but when Heidfeld had been running light earlier on, he'd been very quick as well. The car was working very well there. It was um, on the uh, initial stint, with the, the one that when Lewis was leading before the safety car, it was getting dropped by Lewis. But um, they later reckoned that they were running the tyre pressures too high on the BMW and actually it was more competitive than it had looked, even against the McLaren. It's just that they were running the wrong tyre pressures in that stint. Uh, the, the car was working extremely well around there. Um, it was it was a pretty quick car, g generally, in that first half season, and I'm sure had they continued to develop it, which we'll talk about a little bit later, they, it would have been contending for the World Championship. Um, but it was particular. It was going particularly well that day, and yeah, it was it was a brilliant sequence of laps from Kubica. But the car was working very well. Heidfeld said he was happy with second place and pleased for the team that it had managed to score its first one-two. Although he added, "Obviously, I'm happy for Robert as he did a great job today. He deserves the win. But what racing driver would I be driving in the same team, being so close to my victory, not to be disappointed?" Heidfeld gave what appeared to be a reference to this in his 2020 interview for the Beyond the Grid podcast, where he said, There were occasions where I could have been more selfish, be more against my teammate, be more rude and unfair, but now with hindsight I am happy that I didn't, because I can look at myself in the mirror and I'm very happy with how I behaved in most of those situations. Ed, do you think Heidfeld perhaps should have put up more of a fight when he had Kubica behind him? After his stop, should he have fought for himself and tried to win the race for himself rather than playing the team game? No, I don't think he should have done. Uh, I've spoken to Nick a few times about this over the years and he feels he could have won the, the race from there. Now, again, coming back to the, the trap position point Mark made about Alonso, that would have required him to stay ahead of Kubica and also make sure he didn't get caught up in a collision with him or something. That There was always the risk of that. But also there's there's the general principle, particularly when you've got the fuel strategy situations going on and clashing fuel strategies. It only really works for a team to split strategies if the drivers aren't going to get in each other's way all the time. And that goes for you or against you. This wasn't a question of the team favouring Kibitza and Heidfeld suffering because of it. It was a question of just what the circumstances demanded. If you look at the gains Kibitza made, I think he's about 25 seconds up the road from Heidfeld when he finally made his, his pit stop. So... Let's just assume he pits at the same time from behind Heifeld in this hypothetical situation. That's 25 seconds he's lost. He comes out, I think, in about eighth place. A few of those pit. But yeah, he most likely have been about fourth had that not happened. So they might have had a 1-4. Plus, we have to add the fact that it's not 100% certain Heidfeld would have come through to win that race. Yeah, if he had the race that, that did happen, he would have done. But he struggled a bit battling with, with Alonso. He was struggling with graining. Obviously, he started on the hards. 
and he's on the option tyres in that longer stint, the soft tyres, that he struggled a bit with with graining as well. So it was the best for the team. It not only guaranteed the path to a 1-2, but it also gave him the highest probability chance of, of the victory. And we talked about Heidfeld's strengths, and one of the strengths was that he was a good professional team player. He did, did the job the, the right way. It's just a shame for him that he did never win a Grand Prix. He's got one of my favourite records, which is the most podiums without a, a race-winning world championship races. Certainly frustrating for him, and I slightly disagree with his claim on the day that he was happy about it, because he wasn't. You could see that. There's a there's some footage, if you watch the, the full-length replay on F1.com, of the sort of bit before the podium, and Tyson's there sort of celebrating with Kibitzer, and Heidfeld sort of slinks in. He looks a little bit unhappy, and he's right. He doesn't have to be happy, does he? Because he could have won the race. That's absolutely right. But, yeah, play the play the team game. So this result put Kubica in the lead of the World Championship after seven of 18 races, so immediately there was a lot of talk about if a title challenge could be sustained. But BMW had a roadmap for its F1 team, and this has been a source of much debate since Kubica won this race. Kubica said at the time, The goal was to win a Grand Prix this season, and we have done it. We did it earlier than expected. We are leading the Drivers' Championship, so I hope the team will give me 100% support to try and maybe defend it until the last race. If you are leading the World Championship after seven races, I think we have to push. Maybe in the future we won't get another chance, so we have to use this opportunity. A few days later at a Barcelona test, Kubica had changed his tune a little, perhaps with some encouragement from BMW management, and he said it was unrealistic to expect to fend off Ferrari and McLaren. BMW boss Mario Tyson reiterated the roadmap plan after Canada. He said, Our target for 2008 was to turn the two-horse race at the top of the standings into a three-way battle and to win our first race. We have achieved both goals after just seven races of the season. It's certainly missions accomplished. Clearly, we are not about to sit back and relax now. However, that does not mean we will be deviating from our course. Kubica said in an interview with the Formula One website in 2018 to mark 10 years since his win that BMW slowed our development after Canada as our goal had been achieved, which he felt was a shame. He also said John Alacy congratulated him after the race and said, don't do the same as me by winning only one race in his career and doing it in Canada, which is a little unfortunate. Heidfeld has a slightly different view on BMW's approach to 2008. He said on Beyond the Grid in 2020, I don't think BMW took their foot off the gas, but they also didn't put it all the way down. You see with some other teams, when they see they have a chance for the World Championship, they just put everything in. That didn't happen at BMW. He also felt that even if BMW had pushed on, the pure pace of the car wouldn't have been enough to sustain a title challenge anyway. So I'll throw this to both of you. Let's finish with this subject, which, of course, is made all the more painful when you think that the car BMW focused on for 2009 turned out to be rubbish, and then they pulled out as well. So, Ed, we'll come to you first. Kubica finished 23 points behind Hamilton at the end of the year, back when it was 10 for a win. Should BMW have put more effort into 2008 and might it have made a difference? Well, as you said, certainly if you ask Robert Kubica to this day, he's irritated uh, about that and you, you can understand why. Coming back to what we were talking about earlier about the trade-offs, BMW Sauber was in a bit of a different situation. So if it was sort of sacrificing the rest of a 2008, it was sacrificing more than other teams were by doing that. When you look at 
that points gap, 23 points, even in old money, to find that wouldn't have been impossible had there been a, a sort of full-on push with development. But there are also other factors we have to consider. Some of the things they did do with the car went a little bit away from the, the style that, that Kibitza liked. He felt it start to favour Heidfeld a bit more, just the way they were, they did develop it as well. So there were other factors at play. Also, in defence of, uh, of BMW, they probably couldn't foresee quite how all over the place that season was because the, the Ferrari and McLaren drivers weren't making the most of the points week in, week out. So that 23-point gap at the end of the season was smaller than you might have anticipated at this stage. But yeah, in retrospect, absolutely, they should have cracked on with it. And there was probably a certain lack of imagination in terms of just saying, right, this year's box is ticked. Our one aim is to win a race. We have won a race. Nothing that matters from now happens. When you've got a shot at a championship, you've kind of got to at least push on and and and, and ride it out. So perhaps there was a, a happier medium that could be struck, at least pushing on a little bit for a little bit longer to see how things were further down the line rather than being quite so binary about it. Yeah, I agree that that binary sums it up. You, you cannot apply that approach in racing because you, you have no control over what everybody else is doing. It's 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 such an arrogant way of thinking to say, year one, we will achieve this, year two, we'll achieve that, year three, because you can only control what you are doing. You can't control what everybody else is doing or how brilliant they, or not they might be. So if you're in with a chance in racing, you've got to throw everything into it. And it, it, was, it was a ridiculous decision at the time. It struck me as a ridiculous decision at the time because I thought they were, you know, you, you reach... Canada and you at that stage of the season half almost half of the way through you're leading the world championship then by definition you're in the fight for the world championship and there's no reason to take your foot off the or not put the your foot full on the gas um, because those opportunities don't just arrive by your control those opportunities arrive by a balance of your control and what everybody else is doing which is outside of your control so I, I thought it was a ridiculous decision and actually they'd done it before they'd said when they'd come in with their engine program with Williams they said um, first year is we will just um, achieve podiums which it did second year we will win races which we did and third year we will win the championship which you know you can't say we'll do that because you don't know what everybody else is going to do and Predictably, they didn't. They didn't win the championship. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a real pity. And I, as, as you alluded to there, Ed, neither Hamilton nor Massa nor Raikkonen uh, were um, faultless in their campaigns. They all lost a lot of points. They all made significant errors, or team the teams made errors as well. Um, and for me, the best driver of that year, without question, was Kubica because he was delivering at a very, very high level, and he, he didn't make a mistake worthy of the name, When whereas the two contenders made several. And so, yeah, I think had had they kept their foot on the gas, I think there's every chance they would have won that championship. It wouldn't have been the outright quickest car, it, it, but it was close enough that combined with Kubica's performance and the uh, inconsistency of others, I think they would have done it. I, I really feel they would have done it. And, of course, the thing that's a real shame when you look with what happened subsequently, that was the one chance for Kubica to be a, a championship contender with the accident he had. Great driver, really good guy, a lot of time for, for Kubica. At least he did have this day of days in, in Canada, but just when you look at that that whole story of his career, it looms even larger looking back with what happened subsequently. Yeah, it's it's a huge it's a huge shame. And on the pace of the car, Kubica had got into the lead of the championship by being consistent and reliable while other drivers weren't maximising it in faster cars. So if BMW had kept going, and yeah, with how chaotic 
Massa and Hamilton made that championship fight at various points, there's every chance that with a slightly more competitive car, he could have continued to kind of be a, a championship contender by stealth, maybe. And it's uh, it's a shame that he didn't get to do it that year. It's a shame that he never got another chance. And of course, that he never won another race. So we'll leave it there for Canada 2008. Thank you to Mark and Ed for revisiting this one for us. And uh, remember, listeners, if you'd like us to do more than one V8 episode per series, that's kind of the rhythm we've fallen into at the moment, make sure you let us know by using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email us uh, BringBackV10s at the hyphen race. Com. Also, if you love listening to the show as much as we love making it, then we'd really appreciate it if you could vote for us in the Sports Podcast Awards, where we've been nominated in the category of Best Motorsports Podcast. Head to sportspodcastawards.com forward slash categories forward slash 20 to cast your vote for free. And we'll do some shout outs alongside our five star reviews as a way to say thank you. And to give Ed some quick representation as well, the Race F1 podcast is in there as well. So uh, if you get there and you can't decide who to vote for, vote for Bring Back V10s, obviously. Next time, we're overcompensating for moving out of the V10 era by going all the way back to the first year we cover cover here on Bring Back V10s as we revisit the action-packed and controversial 1989 Portuguese Grand Prix.